Welcome to the Limitless Grit Podcast, where we have conversations with social entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and ordinary people who are achieving extraordinary results. And now, here is your host, Shristi Gajarel. Hey, you guys, welcome to today's episode of the Limitless Grid Podcast. In today's episode, I have none other than Jay Papasan. So I read his book, The One Thing, three times, and I love that book. Um, It has helped me so much with my life, and it has helped me to focus on one thing instead of focusing on 10 different things and going on 10 different directions. And I highly recommend you guys to get that book as well. So after reading that book, I was like, you know what, maybe I should reach out to Jay and see if he would be willing to come to this podcast. And with God's grace, Jay agreed. And I am so, so, so happy he did because we had an amazing conversation. So Jay is an American writer. He's a business executive. He is best known for authoring with Gary Keller books such as Millionaire Real Estate Investor, which had become New York Times bestseller and a Business Week bestseller. He also wrote The One Thing, which is one of my favorite books, which is also New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller. And he's a philanthropist and so much more. And in today's episode, he gives some his best advice. He recommends some amazing book. He talks about his relationship with his wife and so much more. So I hope you guys get out of this conversation as much as I have. And without further ado, Jay Papasan. Jay, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you. Thanks for having me, Shristi. I'm really excited to be here too. Um, I don't think my listeners know, but I've read your book, The One Thing, three times. And it is a new... <laughs> It's a New York Times bestseller, Wall Street Journal bestseller, and it's an absolute honor to have you on my podcast. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, I just wanted to ask you, you're such a great writer. How did you get into real estate? Um, you know, I think when I met my wife, uh, it was right, we got married uh, right before my 30th birthday. We were in New York City, where I believe you're broadcasting from right now. Yeah. That's where we met and got married. And we were ready for a change. And so long story short, um, we went backpacking for five months and I wanted to move to North Carolina and she wanted to go to Austin, Texas. And we came and went to Austin for one weekend, didn't know anybody here and fell in love with the town. This is in 2000, 17 years ago. And um, we moved here without jobs. So I was writing freelance. I was working for magazines, not making very much of a living. I'm an introvert, so I wasn't meeting new people and in a new town. you know. So she'd come home and be like, what did you do today? And it was like, well, I wrote an article and I played some Diablo. And that's not cool, right? So she eventually, like after that summer, says, all right, you're going to get a job. I know we don't need it, but you're going to get a job just because it's going to force you to go meet people. And there was no publishing in Austin. And I thought, well, maybe I'll get a job in the technology department because it's kind of a tech town. And I got a job working in the technology department of a fledgling real estate company called Keller Williams. Mm. Um, When I joined the company, I was a newsletter writer. Um, There were 6,700 agents. Um, There were only 27 employees. And um, that was about two years before I found out my co-author, Gary Keller, wanted to write books at all. Um, but it was a really small building, so it was easy for us to find each other. But that's how I ended up in real estate is I went to work in the tech department. Of, I mean, I had no tech background, right? So they were the only people who were going to take me. I could write. Yeah. So it was one of those weird circumstantial things um, where that choice, my wife kicking me out of the apartment to go be social, really, um, helped me find 
I never thought I would work for a company like this for this long, 17 years. But I found my mentor, my partner, and my, you know, the guy who's been the co-author of all of our books. We've been on an amazing journey together. Now we've sold more than 3 million books. Wow. I mean, this seems like a destiny. Like you're meant to go to Texas. You're meant to meet your mentor and write these amazing books. You know, it's like destiny is a tough word for me because I want to believe that we always are in control of our fates, you know. So I know that, like, I got to work with Gary. I always loved writing. I didn't think there was a writing opportunity. I saw one of our designers working on a book cover, and I asked him. I thought he was freelancing. I was like, hey, are you working on a book? Because I used to be in publishing. And he goes, oh, no, Gary and Dave, um, our old co-author, are working on a book. I'm like, I didn't know that. And so I literally bumped into our chairman of the board and founder in the bathroom. And, you know, long story short, I just like, I remember like that moment, I, I, I thought, you know, what? I need to say something. Mm. And I said, Gary, I hear you're working on a book. Do you remember that I used to work in publishing? Because I'd worked at HarperCollins Publishers for like six years. And he kind of looked at me, kind of did the whole, you know, crack your head to the side, like he's trying to process that information. It's a small company. We kind of, mm. everybody knew everybody. But he didn't remember that I'd been in New York. And that was the moment, right? And I think that um, I listened to the, you know, how I built this podcast. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember which of the founders said it. But he kind of said, you know, I think everybody in life gets the same amount of luck. It's who, who uses it the best are the people who actually know it when it shows up and act on it. And I like that because I don't like to think that luck or fate or destiny visits someone over the other one because then that takes success out of our control. Um, I think something in me recognized that there's an opportunity. Um, I'm really proud of myself. I didn't have a great, you know, not a great relationship with Gary. That sounds like we weren't friends or not friendly with one another. I didn't know him that well, right? We worked in the same mm -hmm. building and I worked for his company, but we weren't friendly. You know, I was just another one of his employees. So it was just one of those moments. And I think that's true for everyone. Um, I love books. That's the thread of my life. I've always loved books. I've been a bookworm. Um, and it wasn't really until I started working for Gary that I started, you know, really seeing the, the self-development bookshelves very differently than I had in the past. What about Gary made you see self-development section of book differently? Well, I mean, my grandfather was this way too. He's, he's very much a self-made man, um, self-made person, right? And, he graduated with a real estate and insurance degree from Baylor University, moved to Austin where he knew no one, um, worked for another real estate company for a few years before he realized that he didn't love the culture that they were building there and started to start his own company. Mm. And, you know, he's 27 years old, right? Yeah. So he's so young. And um, when I met him, he had yet to take a million dollars back out of the business yet. It was successful, mm -hmm. you know, 6,700 agents, 27 employees. Today we have well over 300 employees, and we have 156,000 agents. Wow. So it's massive. He's, you know, I mean, in everything, like if he was in Forbes, he would be listed among the billionaires, but he's private, so nobody knows. So he's a self-made man. And, you know, you don't learn that stuff in college. Mm -hmm. So he's always been an avid. He's always reading books. And if, I, if we had a camera on the podcast, I would pan to this bookshelf I mean, I've got stacks and stacks and stacks of business and self-help books because he's always like, have you read this yet? Read it. And he'll point to the chapter that I need to pay attention to. So he's never, ever thought to himself like, well, I know what I'm doing now. He never gets to that place. And, you know, in our company, we call it 
we're trying to attract and we want to work with people who are learning based, that it's essential to who they are, that they know that, that, that growth is a journey. There's no destination that we're just going to always be growing. And he's always, I mean, he could be so complacent with his success now, but he's as hungry as anyone I've ever seen. Cause for him, it's all growth, wow. you know, it's personal growth. And so I see all of that as a form of, if I truly want to be my best self, I can learn from other people. Um, and I can learn from books, which is other people, but they could be dead for centuries and I still get to learn from them, right? I can, I can have Aristotle as my personal mentor and so can you, Absolutely. right? Like you've read our book three times. I love that. I mean, I, I, we worked in a cave for five years, Tristy. I mean, it was so wow. hard working on this book. And then when it comes out, like every other writer, we're like, oh my God, this is going to be a disaster you know, we're going to get horrible reviews. You still have all of that horrible writer psychosis. Mm -hmm. And so I never get tired of hearing people saying, wow, this is working for me. But it's, it's an essential thing. Like there's so much to learn out there and we should never stop growing. I wouldn't want my kids to do that. And I'm not going to be a poor role model for them. So that's what I mean by, I look at those shelves as like, that's my journey. That's my personal growth journey. I mean, I'll talk about book and uh, like right after this question. But when you said Gary is so successful and he's still like putting so much work into like reading and learning, it gave me chills because growing up, I grew up in a family where it was like either you're born smart or you are not. And it took me a long time to realize, hey, like growth mentality and fixed mentality after reading Mindset and realizing. Love that book such a great book and realizing wow like I was limiting myself like I've never ran a mile in my life and I'm training for marathon this year and this Saturday I did 18 miles and like five you're gonna run the New York marathon in a week Brooklyn, or two Brooklyn okay. in two weeks and right. I never thought I could run 18 miles in my life even a day before that I was praying I was like God give me courage but I did it because I had that goal and I was like slowly incrementally working towards that goal for past six months and that gave me the courage and boost to do it and I think a lot of people don't realize it that most people who are successful is not because they were born with a mindset but because they developed that mindset. I think it's always the case. I mean, unless you were born like in the third century and were born into royalty and got to be a king somewhere, right? I mean, that's over. Now it's about um, who you're willing to become, and that's just a journey. Like I think it's, you know, the world's flat, all of that stuff. Like it's a very competitive world we live in, and mm -hmm. if you really want to succeed at the highest possible level, I just don't think you can neglect personal development. And I, I mean, I love that Gary's never rested on his laurels, so he sets that example. He expects it of all of us. Mm -hmm. And I can remember when I interviewed with him, we had everything up on flip charts. He was asking questions: Where do you want to be in five years? And you know, one of our standard, you know, kind of places we explore is, you know, if we look out five years from now and we've parted ways, why did you leave? Mm. And it's funny, if you're treating something that might happen in the future as if it happens in the past, you tend to be more honest with yourself. Mm -hmm. And I just said, um, I've stopped growing. Yeah. And I just kind of already like with just, you know, a year or so working in this company, I already realized like this place is a personal development machine. Um, people come here not because they want to work in real estate, because they want to work in this environment. Um, I will say I've come to love real estate. Um, that's a really crazy, complex world that I didn't know existed before I worked here. So it's not like I hate real estate and just love the environment. I actually love both now. But um, right, everybody should have a mentor like that that will push them to be their best self. 
And I, you started talking about the New York Marathon. I love that. That was a pivotal, like I can look at my life in two halves. There's before Wendy and after Wendy. And when I was meeting Wendy, my wife, um, I was going through this place where everything I'd done up to that point in my life, I would procrastinate, wait till the last minute, study. Um, there was very little um, being methodical in my life because so much of what I was reaching for um, and that growth, you know, fixed mindset, it's probably a fixed mindset with stuff that I was pretty sure I could reach. Right. And when you're doing that, you're never really stepping outside your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And I was a smoker back then. And I can remember uh, my roommate kind of conned me into running the New York Marathon as a way to get me to stop smoking. <laughs> and, you know, you know this, you've been training for it. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd never run more than three miles in my life. Same. <laughs> and you don't get to show up the day before and prepare for a marathon. Oh, oh my God, no. <laughs> no, and it's just, you just chip away. And I remember I had a little index card. I'm sure there's apps on your phone now. I have a like, chart paper right behind me. Yeah, exactly. And you have your mileage, like you run five days out of the week or something. Yeah. And it'd be like day one, run a mile. Day two, run a mile and a quarter. Day three, run a mile and a half. And then you go back down to like a mile and a quarter. You have a day off and then you run two miles. Mm -hmm. And like you do these little leaps. And I remember Saturday was always my long day and I was yes. syncing it up because Saturday was race day or Sunday was race day. Uh -huh. And, you know, so it was always that long run. And uh, like this is again, this is right in that period where I'm becoming a different human being and I'm marrying my wife. I don't know that at this point. I've just started dating her, but I'm, I'm on this transformational moment in my life right before I turned 30. And I remember like, wow, like, I'm just chipping away at this. And it was right, you know, maybe two thirds. You could look at the mileage and tell me. Um, I ran 14 miles on my long day, wherever mm -hmm. that is in that journey. Mm -hmm. And I came home and I'm showering because I got a date with this hot chick named Wendy. <laughs> you know, I'm so excited. And I'm in a rush. And my roommate said, how far did you run today? Because he'd run a bunch of marathons. He'd like done the Appalachian Trail. He was a distance guy. Uh -huh. And I was like, uh, I don't know, like 14.4 miles or something. You know, he's like, dude. And he's like, starts cracking open a beer. And I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, we got to celebrate. And I'm like, why are we celebrating? I ran 14 miles. And he goes, Jay, you just ran a half marathon. Some people, that's that's like, that is the achievement. Yeah. And what's really beautiful about that is when you are reaching for something that's far bigger than you, um, there are so many milestones along the way that we don't even, that would have been it for some other people, mm -hmm. right? That you just kind of blow through. Because you're really focused, and we talk about this in the one thing, like you're focused on something really big. Yep. And even if I had never run the marathon or finished the marathon, I'd still be a half marathoner many times over. Absolutely. Because you do that on the training run. Mm -hmm. And there are people who have bumper stickers on their car for running 13.5 you know, or whatever the yeah. distance is, right? Yeah. And so um, maybe you just had an epiphany yourself. But I just remember thinking, wow, if I'm willing to put in a little effort every day, um, I, I just had this massive thing. It's like, wow, I could be so much bigger mm -hmm. than I ever thought I could be in terms of what was possible for me. And in the book, that's what we talk about. You know, it's like the dominoes. Yes. You just get up every day and you knock over the domino. You knock over the domino and you they get bigger and you don't even realize it. You're knocking over bigger dominoes and bigger dominoes. And you might think, wow, it took forever to do that. But in the grand scheme, it took no time at all. Absolutely. Why do you think people are so hesitant about being appreciative of smaller achievement and rather 
think everything has to be in a bigger scale. Like I just finished reading Walter Isaacson's book on Einstein and he didn't have a job like nine years after he graduated and he was the only one from his school, but he was still publishing like crazy or even the book originals, they say how like all big, big successful people, the reason they're successful is because they produce way more than we actually know about. But why do you think most people think that oh, you have to be born with it, and it's like a one-time success thing. Well, I think it's a, um, you know, you go all the way back to Ragged Dick, right? Those little uh, American dream books. That's uh, if you recognize it. I think this guy was Horatio Alger was the author, and his character was called Ragged Dick. And there were all these rags to riches stories um, that were kind of the, a big part of the American dream. And it was all kind of telling you, here's the formula you work hard, you do right, and big things will happen to you. <laughs> and so the, the myth is always this kind of idea of I'm in my dorm room and I'm programming and you look up tomorrow and they got a Facebook, right? That's not the way it actually mm-hmm. looks like in real life. And if you go and you're reading these books, you're hearing these stories, um, what happened is that they were really passionate about something and they were just doing it every day. And this comes back to the luck discussion. You know, Gary always said, you know, people talk about timing the market, um, it's Lux the same way. He goes, no, um, you kind of have a sense of what you're looking for and you just stand on the corner every day and eventually opportunity finds you. Absolutely. And I think all of those success stories, you have people who are churning and churning every single day and it's the journey, the activity that they actually enjoy. Cause they're going to do it and they're going to keep doing it. And then all of that work that nobody really paid attention to does culminate into that moment where Facebook Mm-hmm. gets invented. And then suddenly three years later, you're a billionaire. But they nobody talks about the 10 years <laughs> you were working on your hobbies. And you were failing at all the things that never added up to anything that actually became the foundation for the idea that did. Yeah. And, and that's in that's real life. I think that's real life is that you work and you, you you're you're kind of you're you're chipping away at this thing in your future. And it takes time. And then suddenly the shape starts to become apparent. And that's when you start to kind of lock in on it and things feel like they're happening really fast. So I think there's one, this, this universal myth about how fast things happen. And two, I think, especially with entrepreneurs, we're really impatient people. So we want to skip as many steps as we want, right? We read these books as much as to, to hear the stories of what we need to hear. But we're also looking for that secret, that silver bullet, that hack that'll make the journey shorter and faster for us. Mm-hmm. So there's a little human nature built into this, too. Absolutely. And they say like overnight success takes 10 years of work. So, but like you said, your book, right? I was reading one of the, I think Lewis House podcast, and you mentioned how you were planning to pre-sell 30,000 books before the book was even sold. And for you, that was success. And for your partner, he was like, why don't you shoot for 100,000? And you're like, (laughs) and you were kind of uncomfortable with that. And I was, I was like in the fetal position. So the, the story, I, I, this is a great, you know, idea of forcing yourself to look at a bigger thing. Uh, we've been working with our team in the publishing company. It was 40,000. We thought that if we sold 40,000 books, we could be a number one bestseller. Mm-hmm. And so all of our plans and all of our planning were to sell 40,000. And I've been working for Gary forever. Like our first book we wrote together was called The Millionaire Real Estate Agent. And one of the, the, the mantras in that book was aim high. And the whole point of aim high is even when you fall short, you're at a really good place. And, you know, everybody says, like, no plan survives engagement with the enemy, right? You get punched in the mouth and it all goes out the door. 
And so the idea of writing a plan for 40,000 when the thing we needed was 40,000 was complete folly. Hmm. And so Gary just like more than doubled it. He's like, make a plan for 100,000. And then even if you don't get half of it, you'll hit your goal. Does that make sense? And so like it just it blew my mind until I kind of like first I was like, of course, I should have done aimed higher because I should have known by then. And two, <laughs> it's like, yeah, we're going to fail. We're not going to if we if we don't aim a lot higher, none of these outcomes that we would like to have happen are going to happen. Yeah. And Lean In was being published at that point. So if you hadn't aimed that high, you know, it would probably not have been a bestseller. Yeah. Oh, Cheryl, love her. Great book. <laughs> but that was like our, you know, the, the, it, in, in publishing, you're graded on a curve. It's whoever sold the most books that week. And so we had the misfortune of, of launching it exactly at the same moment in time that the CEO of Facebook launched Lean In, which is a terrific book. And I gave away lots of copies, even if I resented her when we were number <laughs> two week after week. Uh, but we did get number one a couple of weeks in a row. And I was like, woohoo. <laughs> but what I loved about the story is that for most people, including myself, I was like, oh my God, this is such a great book. And it probably went to like New York Times, Wall Street Journal, number one position by itself. Like, oh, you know, probably people recognized it and it just was sold. But I didn't realize how much work you guys put in before the release of the book to even like make it to number one list. Well, that's everything, right? And the average book, um, there's a lot of self-published books now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd always heard in, before self-publishing that the average book sold like 2,500 copies in its lifetime. And now that number's dropped all the way to 250. And so if you want to have a bigger outcome, you've got to have a bigger plan. And there's almost always so much more groundwork to do. And I'll just tell you, honestly, like the one thing didn't actually take off based on all of that work that we did. We managed to sell a lot of books in that period of time. Um, That was very strategic. And then I watched the sales drop every single week, starting in September when our big push ended, and then they dropped all the way until the following April. So exactly one year after we started, and then they started going up, just like 50 copies a week, and then it was 100 copies a week. And by the end of that summer, we were back on the bestseller list, but now it was completely organic. And, you know, it was, we had laid this foundation and we got a lot of books out in the world, but then it took a long time for people, I think, to actually read the book and like you start experiencing the book and then want to share the book. And, and I don't know, it's just it's amazing how like even in a relatively weird and archaic world, it's not like we're building software here. This is a book. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not like, you know, high tech enterprise. It's still there's a lot demanded if you want to have extraordinary success. There's very there's a lot fewer paths and you've got to follow models and you've got to be committed for the long run. That's what that's you know that's what our book is about, extraordinary success. And the sim- the formula is not complicated, but it's just not easy. Mm. So, um, from real estate, how did you guys decide on writing one thing? Um you know, it came out of an essay. You know, I was at that time running our in-house university, our training university, and Gary wrote a short essay called The Power of One. And we were at that point trying to get small business owners to understand that it didn't really matter how good they are at whatever they did, in this case, real estate. They didn't have customers. They were out of business. And a lot of people go into business because, you know, let's just say I'm going to be a massage practitioner, and I really love helping heal people and doing massage. Well, you still got to go get customers or you have no one to practice on and then no one to refer you business. Mm-hmm. And so 
he was just really clear that anyone in business has two jobs. You're out there marketing and prospecting or lead generating, is that what we say, and then you're doing whatever profession you're doing. And he was like, this is the one thing. If you want to look at what differentiates everybody at the top, they did this thing first and they never stopped doing it. And I remember reading that essay. I was like, well, this is not just a, an essay. This is a book because I'd been in publishing. And he's like, yeah, I thought that too. And that's where that, that journey started. Because um, Gary's always lived that. I mean, he tells some of the stories in here. He's pretty much lived most of his adult life along a lot of the principles we have in the book. So we started with, here's Gary's hypothesis, and then we worked with two researchers for almost five years trying to validate and fill in the blanks. Because we weren't, you know, Gary's hypothesis was right a lot of the time. I mean, he's incredibly successful for a reason because he's purposeful. Mm. Um, he studies success. And he always has. Before there was a Tim Ferriss podcast, right? He was always interviewing and modeling people. How do you do that? Um, but I think you know, Gary often says this to all of us to keep us humble. He's like, we're often successful in spite of about half of what we're doing. So someone goes up to you, Tristy, you have this amazing podcast and you're traveling to McCall in India and you're doing all this fabulous lifestyle. You're going to say, and they'll say, how do you do it? And you're going to say, well, here are the five things I recommend you do. Well, those are just the five things that you're aware of. Mm -hmm. And there's probably some things that you're, are working against you. And there's stuff that you're doing that's totally unconscious. And so um, I love the idea of the one thing because it got, helped us fill in those blanks for Gary, too. Like he kind of got the big principles, but now we got the science behind them. And we also got to fill in a lot of the blanks. He'd be like, we'd come back and say, Gary, it's not really this. It's this. He goes, of course it is. And, and, and that's kind of that's how the book came to life. How do you prioritize your one thing? I think it's it's a, such a beautiful concept. And it's and when I read it, I said, like I think I mentioned before we started recording that I used to have like 10 or 12 things in my list and I would just check it off every single day and feel so good about myself because dopamine was telling me, oh, I did this, this. But then I was putting things that was most important last and I never got to do that. Then after reading your book, I realized, oh, wow, like I was screwing myself over without even realizing that I was screwing myself over. So like, like how does your to-do list look and how do you prioritize that? Um, well, we talk about this um, in the book. I think it's chapter four. Um, and we talk about Pareto's principle, the 80-20 rule. That's kind of what this book is on steroids. Mm -hmm. So I think you knew it, right? In retrospect, you thought about all the times you'd done your to-do list and you hadn't really focused on number one. I think, I think most people are aware of what their number one is intuitively. They know that there are things that matter most. If you're a parent, you know we know that there are these moments of truth reading a book to your small child, right? Um, pick up and drop off from school are huge for school-age kids. That's where all the conversation happens, right? By the time you get home for dinner, what happened, honey? Oh, nothing, Dad. Like, that's, that ship sailed. Mm. Like, there's moments of truth in almost everything we do and in our work, too. And it's so easy to be busy, right, and do all of these activities. But activity is not the same thing as productivity, Productivity is activity based on your priorities. So it's really, I mean, it sounds way too simplistic, but if people would just stop and ask the question, what's my one thing? All they have to do is identify it, and then they have the ability to prioritize it. But to-do lists are written in the order we think of them, right? And so we're not putting that, we're not asking the right question. You're asking the question, what do I need to do? 
the question we tell people to ask is, what's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else will be easier? Like, what's my number one, my biggest number one this week or today, whatever your time frame is? So in most professions, like if you're a professional podcaster, Tristy, I don't know like, if this is a hobby or this is your business, right? If it's a podcast, right, then for you, it's, it's recording episodes and actually lining up the most amazing people you can, mm-hmm. right? And I listen to podcasts I've never listened to because, you know, they've got the lady from Spanx on. I can't even think of her name right now. But every time I've Sarah. heard her interviewed, yeah, Sarah, I'm like, yeah. oh, my gosh, Sarah Blakely. I'm like, every time I listen to her, it's like I want to listen to her again. Yeah. Like there are some people I'm just going to go listen to. So like, yeah. So it's like if you go out and lead generate for the right guest, mm-hmm. that allows you to create like your dominoes have an order. Most businesses do. Mm-hmm. And if we just stop and look at it, we go, wow, the first domino is this. And that should be my number one every single day. Right. You know, if this was your full time job, you would spend a disproportionate amount of time lining up the content that you would then record. Because mm-hmm. top people are busy. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I'm Sarah Blakely, I wonder how far her calendar is booked out for podcast interviews. Oh, I mean, I reached out to her husband because her husband is so great, too. And I mean, yeah. they're like, oh, four months. We can, we can reach <laughs> back. I was like, OK. I, that was our we, we put together a list. Uh, my wife and I. You know, who you may hang out with matters, and we wanted to hang out with more millionaires, so we tried to schedule dinners with people that might be mentors to us. Mm-hmm. And our vice chairman, the co-founder of the company, really, um, she was the first CEO, Mo Anderson. And I remember it was like, let's go to dinner with Mo and Richard. So like, we're in January, and we're like, hey, we'd like to treat you to dinner one night. We just want an hour of your time. I mean, I work in the same building with the woman. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, it took us so many months to get that on the calendar. And that was our first aha. It's like, oh, wow, people who are really successful are actually pretty booked up. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that, I think that the key here is my personal system, um, we talk about in the book, I've got a 411. Um, I look at, you know, go way out. My wife and I do. This is the time of year. I think it's in two weeks. We do our goal sim, goal setting. We go out away for a weekend and we plan where we want to be in five years. And we update that every year. Yeah. Then we create a business plan for. We have multiple businesses. It's a one-page business plan called a GPS in the book. Like where do we want to go this year based on where we want to be in five. And the thing I carry around with me, and I'm I'm tethered to this microphone. I it's, I can see it across the table. It's a one-page sheet we call four one one that has my core annual goals at the top, then every month I say, based on that, what am I going to do? And that goes in the middle, right? To make my number one thing for the year happen, what do I do this month? Mm -hmm. And then every week I pull out that piece of paper and I say, well, based on where I said I was going to be this month, which was also based on this year, which by the way, was based on my five-year goal, what do I have to do this week? And we call that goal setting to the now. It's in the book. You know, the problem for most of us is, we have these dreams. I want to go to space someday. But we have zero idea how to behave this week in order to actually be making progress. And that's a simple process that kind of keeps us more or less on track for that distant horizon that we really, I mean, nobody can navigate to those things, but we need to be, at least be going in the right direction. So that's the actual process I follow. And I think you also talked about like looking at backward. So instead of looking at forward, like look track back your steps? Or... Well, when we, people say begin with the end in mind, this is the process for doing it, right? And I, I remember I've interviewed now in the last, just in the last two years, I think four different billionaires. And you ask them about their plans for the future, and it's like they're going there in their head. And they have a really clear picture of where they want to be, even if it's completely made up. 
and then they're working their way back. And so if you, if I asked you, Shristi, like, you know, tell me about, you know, how did you get here today sitting in that chair um, and chatting with me? And what you would do is you would look back and you would realize there were a series of milestones. Um, and in this particular conversation, we know originated in a bar, right? <laughs> like where you came up with the idea with your friend. Yeah. And, but that's, so that's one of the last things, right? But there might've been, and I studied journalism in college, or I had a mentor and I always loved radio. Like there might've been dots that go back farther. We tend to look back and see a straight line of the steps we took to get where we are. And so the whole trick of this is to go out into the future and try to do that same thing. And it's amazing. I mean, all right, nobody has a crystal ball. I can't, I have five-year goals and I can't tell you exactly what it's going to look like three years from now, but I got a pretty good idea what I need to do this year to make good progress. And by the way, in that five-year journey, by the time you're two years in, you have a really good idea because you've been focused on it for a long time, right? So you're growing on the journey which people don't realize. So you start off as dumb as everybody and you're getting better and better and course correcting along the way. It's just so great. I mean, like I ha I do that, right? I write goals. I'm like one year goal, three year goal and I'm good for it for like three months. Then I just start. <laughs> I don't know if people in my podcast could relate to that, but like I'm good for it for three months. I like wake up, I have like hour of power. I'm like reading out my goals and like, doing everything and after three months I just start not doing it and in six months like I don't even remember what my goal was mm. well you need to write them down I mean I literally have a notebook I carry with me everywhere it's like my journal um, it's I know some people do that on their their laptops that's fine too I, I believe that you remember things better when you physically write them down I don't know um, maybe I'm just old school but I use, I mean, I built my goal sheet in Excel, right? Because I am a numbers geek. Mm -hmm. But I keep a, a printed copy. I print it every week, the revised, because every week my, my activities might change a little bit. Mm -hmm. But that's, whenever I open up that notebook to take notes on a meeting I just had with you or whatever, I have to confront my goals. Mm -hmm. I want to ask I, you, yeah. So just like, I, I think one of the ways you stick with them is you create a habit right? Around how you engage with it regularly. And I also will just admit fully, like I, when my wife and I, like every year we reevaluate, what did we say we we're going to do last year? What we get done? There's always at least half of it. It sounded great when we wrote it down that we played with and just discarded. It didn't stick. So a lot of what we think we want in the future does not play out. It's the handful of things that we stick to for a long time that make the big changes in our life happen. I've like read your books and uh, listened to some podcasts and you talk so highly about your wife and it looks like you guys have an amazing, amazing relationship. And I'm just 24. I have friends who are in their 20s as well. What should we look for when we're looking for a partner? Um, I love that question because I think it is, for me, it's been one of the most important. Um, it is, I mean, it's much more important than my partnership with Gary Keller. Um, it is the partnership, right? That it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Um, I can give you my journey. I haven't researched this, right? So this is not a research standard. This is answer. This is an experiential for me. The journey was I stopped wanting a future partner to fill a blank in me. And I decided to fill that blank myself. Mm -hmm. So I was running the marathon for the first time to quit smoking and I was finishing up my master's and I had basically made a commitment that I wasn't going to date anybody for longer than three months. 
because by three months, I should know whether they were a good fit or not. And if somebody wasn't, I wasn't going to waste any more of their life. Mm. And that, that led to some interesting conversations because you're still in three months. It's still just a lot of fun. That's mm. like you and your goals for three months. I'm all excited. You know, it's <laughs> dating. You're dating. You're dating your goals to figure out which ones you want to marry. Right. That's not a bad metaphor. You don't get married to any of them right off the bat. You do need to date them a while and see which ones you can fall in love with and stick with. Mm -hmm. But I also knew that it had to be about they, the right person will like I so cheesy, you know, complete you, whatever. Right? That sounds so corny. Barf. All right, everybody can go barf and come back. But <laughs> um, but that's not what they're there for. Right? You just find that person. So the moment I stopped being focused on finding her, she showed up in my life because I didn't need her. And I think that, you know, need on anybody stinks. And so, like, any, come on. And, I mean, I'm sure when guys, you're in New York, guys are going to come up to you. You know the ones who are needy versus the ones who are not, right? Mm -hmm. it, it just shows up. And so the moment I didn't need to have that companionship, she became a evident. So there could have been 10 other women I could have married, but I wasn't ready yet. So I would just say focus on you. Fall in love with who you are and who you can be. And then find that person, um, hopefully an unselfish person. I've, I have a personal theory that having unselfishness is what actually keeps people together. Wow. Uh, find that person who's, because being together now 18 years, it's all about being willing to step aside for each other at, at different intervals. She went home to take care of our kids. When she started her business, guess who's doing the laundry and has done the laundry ever since, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's got to be trade-offs. And so, but that, that, that was figured out a long time ago. So it's funny. I was just chatting with one of my friends here in the office and having the same thing. I told him about, I had my three month rule and I remember breaking up with this amazing woman. I mean, she's like the station head of CNN, like for like Asia or something now. Um, amazing woman. And I just kind of knew that it wasn't right for me and I ended it and oh God, she was furious with me because it felt so arbitrary to her. But I was like, if I prolong this, I'm wasting her life. I've already known in my heart and I was trying to be truer to that because I was just trying not to come from any need. Mm. So anyway, I thought we're in the jumbled world of love now. You brought us there. So it's your fault. No, no, no. I'm really curious. What were three or two qualities that you loved about your you know, current wife that you decided to stay with her even after three months? Um, I knew after three dates, if you want to know the truth. Wow. Um, I'd been on a journey for a while. Like I said, like I'd made this decision. I almost got married mm -hmm. um, and I broke it off and I realized I was doing it for all the wrong reasons. So I, that's when I made the rule up and I said, you know what, I'm just going to work on me. And when the right person shows up, I'll be willing to accept that. But I've got to get out of this search, search, search mode. So I tried to build a life where I was really happy with me. And I was happy to date along the way, but it wasn't coming from that need position. Mm. So when I met Wendy, I mean, by the third date, I kind of was like, oh, this is freaking me out because this is this is getting really real really fast. But I mean, we both loved to travel. She had lived overseas. I'd lived overseas. And, and that's all stuff that you can just have a crush on someone for. So I don't know. But I think I think that I'd met her exactly a year before I met her when we started dating. And that was the wrong time. So we had two shots. We met at a mutual friend's birthday party two years in a row. The first year, nothing happened. Second year, it was fireworks. So there's that timing, right? I, I kept going to that corner. Luckily, she was there a second year in a row for me. 
and it, and we lucked out. And then we just worked really hard to make it work and keep working. Okay. Marriage is really rewarding. It's like parenting, right? A lot of hard work, incredibly rewarding. Uh, it's so funny. I was <laughs> watching Melania Trump and Donald Trump's interview yesterday. He's like, oh, it's not work. It's not work. And I was like, come on. But it, I'm sure it's a lot of work. It's work for one of them. I guarantee you, right? <laughs> I, I, I don't know if if Ivanka uh, got a chance to comment on that or not. Um, but I'm sure it may not be work for him. I do think that there are people who innately need a relationship where one is the full-time supporter and the other person is the full-time, you're going to support me. Mm-hmm. Like that's like the, the – and the, the male women thing, that's like the old traditional. I'll be the breadwinner. You take care of that with a house and kids, which is – hopefully is buried in the past. Like if, if two people choose that good for them, but we have other choices now. So I just think that the dynamic has to work for both people. My wife and I love independence. We want to stretch. We want to grow. And that means that sometimes we don't get to do everything we want to do. We have to support the other person for us to kind of keep doing it together. It's amazing. You guys have same values and you talk about it every single, uh, you said like every single six months you talk about your goals. Uh, every year we started this when we had kids and things started to really accelerate in our, in our life. Um, I think we've been doing it for nine, maybe 10 years. Uh, we go on a goal setting retreat. The first time we did it, we just rented a hotel room on Priceline and drove downtown and got an overnight babysitter for our small kids and went to dinner and said, what do you want to do next year, basically? And then we spent the next morning with spreadsheets trying to really get clear about where we're going on vacation and our rental properties, what we're going to invest in. And I think if you if you experience big success as a company or a couple, um, communication becomes the glue that keeps things together. And, you know, we're both entrepreneurs. Um, I have a job, too. I'm literally an employee, even though she's running her company. And you make all these decisions really fast. And, you know, what when you start withdrawing, making a withdrawal in terms of like a banking analogy instead of a deposit into the relationship Mm -hmm. is when you start asking for things of your spouse without really giving them a fair chance to decide. And so my wife, I'm, I'm an introvert. She's an extrovert. She knows now on a Friday night, if she's going to have company over to the house, especially realtors, and that's work for me, she's going to make sure I'm okay with that. And she'll say, Hey, I'm going to have a group together at the house to mastermind on Saturday. Um, do you want to hang out with us or do you want to go to the movies by yourself? And I'll be like movies, but like, but that's a permission based thing. And it, and it still happens every now and then where we just don't communicate, but it's when we, we do communicate, all of this is happening by agreement instead of just expecting the other person to follow us along. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, you it don't feels ex- really mess in my head. No, no, no. I mean, I, that, that's such a good point. Like you don't expect the other person to read your mind and she doesn't expect that either. Is there any it doesn't work-, work in business and it doesn't work in marriage? Yeah, such a good lesson. Is there any work-life balance? Or and I know from your reading your book, you said you don't believe in work-life balance. Um, I believe that it's not a destination you get to to show up. I think the misconception is if I make all these adjustments to all the dials in my life, I'll just be in this state of nirvana. And people are pitching people on, "I'll coach you to that place." Um, I don't believe that place exists. And if it does, it exists in as a moment in time and it goes away. So balance is something you fight for all the time. So, you know, one of the ways we call it counterbalancing, right? Um, you know, you can learn to ride a bike and in the beginning it's really hard and we fall off a lot and then it gets to be fairly instinctual, right? You get balance, but balance is a verb. Mm. 
it's something that you do. It's not a noun. So I think that um, as long as we view it that way, I, and, and if I was like in a class and I was trying to make my point, I'd make everybody stand up on one foot. And you have all these people, you know, waving their arms. And they're like, and I'll, I'll usually make them stand longer than they want to. And I'll just ask them, say, great, are you balanced or are you balancing? And they, the unanimous answer is like everybody kind of gets it. Oh, I'm balancing. So it's an activity. Mm-hmm. So when you are working really hard, then you need to look up and say, you know, I can't neglect my spiritual life or my physical health or these key relationships. I've got to counterbalance. If I go out of town for a long time, like I tried to talk to my wife. We had a, a charity um, event on Tuesday night. And um, we do it every year, and it's always really crazy at the very end, you know, putting on an event for 200 people. And, you know, like I slept 10 hours last night. And I was like, I told my wife, I was like, can we just keep the kids home from school today? And I almost talked her into it because I didn't have to be into work till like noon today. Be ready to counterbalance very actively and proactively and just keep them home and like play video games. I didn't care. Read a book together. Let's go take the dog for a walk. But I think that if you don't mindfully rebalance your life in these areas, you know, you may come home for work to someday and find out that those people aren't lost their patience and they're not waiting for you anymore. Mm. Um, you can neglect your health. And we see a lot of people do this when they're doing startups. But they're, they're, taking, you know, they're taking withdrawals on something and at some point that account is going to come due. And that's when people have breakdowns and they get burnt out and they get, un, you know, they lose their health. So um, we talk about that in kind of detail in the book. Mm-hmm. So I just, the main thing is for people on balance, it's overrated as a destination. It sounds totally boring to me. Um, I'd rather be a little bit out of balance most of the time. That's much more enjoyable. But where it matters, I'm going to be very purposeful. I'm going to get some time for myself. I'm going to get some time for God. I'm going to get some time for the people that matter most. And make sure that they get regular doses and they're never neglected for very long. Yeah. That's, I love that your advice is so practical because, you know, we can neglect our health and before we know it, it's just going to, you'll be in the hospital or you could like keep ne- neglecting your relationship. And before you know it, you're like, why did that person leave me? And people don't realize small actions matter, like domin- domino effects. Well, you and your listeners are young, right? I could neglect my sleep for a week when I was your age, right? You can't do that. That's a game you get to play for a little while. And it has a cost, mm-hmm. right? It has a cost. But it, it's not, it doesn't feel as high when you're really young. So it's just like I, I remember um, I had a, an assistant that was working for me. And she was working on, you know, when the book was coming out. She's like, I'm going to form some health habits. I'm going to start working out every day. I'm like, awesome. And I'm like, when are you going to do that? And she's like, nine o'clock at night. You know, when I'm all done, I'm going to go work out and then go home and go to bed. And I was like, awesome. Um, I knew that she wanted a family and wanted to have kids someday. And I was just like, you know, when you're married and you have, you know, the three kids you envision having and the two dogs and everything, do you think you'll be going to work out at nine o'clock at night? And she's like, probably no. It's like, when do you think you'd be working out in that world? She's like, probably in the morning said, well, why don't you start by doing that? Mm. And now you've built a habit for life instead of a habit built around the fact that you happen to like to sleep really late right now. Yeah. Now you can build a habit that will serve you for your entire life and you're reinforcing it. Every time we change a habit, it's a lot of work. Yeah, It takes 66 so, days, you said? On average, right? But, you know, the joke in there is like, what's the average temperature in America right now, Shristi? <laughs> 
right? You roll your eyes. I can see you on Skype, right? Um, who cares? Like you have to dress for New York. I have to dress for Austin, Texas, right? right? And I'm sure there's someone who could Google what's the average temperature in the U.S., but it doesn't matter to any of us. That's so true. 66 days is mostly informative in that it takes a lot longer than most people think, right? Most people think it takes 21 days or 30 days. So it takes at least two to three times that amount of time to actually change your behavior in a meaningful way. So that's the real lesson from that. Um, but if you're going to go do a 66-day challenge, which is what we call them, pay attention to your body. Um, one of the ones I love, you know, we're just a couple of weeks from falling back. And I learned this, um, and I'm going to totally space on her name now because it's been a long week. Um, she wrote The Happiness Project, and I can't think of her name. Anyway, she said, you know, if you want to learn how to get up earlier in the morning, um, when you turn your clocks back, just keep getting up at the same time. Wow. Now you're no sleepier than you were the week before, but you have a whole extra hour in your morning. And so, like, there's hacks and things that we can do to make things easier, you know. But in general, it's going to take about 66 days. And just pay attention. But, like, I remember the first time I started manually moving my clock back in the morning so I could have more time before work to really do the things I needed. Um, there comes a day where you start waking up before the alarm clock goes off. And that's when you know the habit's stuck. I could literally talk to you forever, but I just have a few more rapid-fire questions. Um, sure. Do you have any morning routine, or is there anything um, you do in the morning? Sure. Um, we get up about 5.10. Um, my wife and I work out three days a week with a trainer, and that's been really fun. It's actually uh, – we thought it was an exercise habit, but it actually was marriage counseling, it turns out, our poor trainer. Um <laughs> But we do that on the days we're not working out. Um, I'll read the paper, um, and she will read articles online. We sit on the couch together and have our dog, you know, going back and forth between us. And um, then I get the kids up, and we have breakfast at the table. And the last thing I usually do is check my calendar for the day, which tells me what, you know, because I've aligned my calendar with my priorities, tells me what my priorities are for the day. But that's kind of the rhythm. So, We've fallen into that for about seven years now, and it's been great. I love getting exercise. I love eating as a family. I love getting a little reading time in the morning and then looking at my goals. Like, what do I need to get done today? So before I get to work, I know what my priorities are, and I, I'm a l less easily distracted. Wow. Um, any books you would recommend? Um, you know, you had asked me to prepare for two, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you – give, I've got stacks of them. I'm looking give at them. Give me like, 20. It doesn't matter. Um, I love Give and Take by Adam Grant. Um, I heard you mention him earlier, so you're familiar with him. Mm -hmm. um, I think everybody uh, should be a strategic giver. I think it's good for business and it's good for life. Um, I love Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art. Such a great um, book. Everything that we do, you know, if you have a one thing, and we all do, um, then battling the resistance is a lot, a big part of it. And I love that metaphor. Like, how do I get past the resistance to do the thing that really matters to me? In his case, it was writing. But we all have that thing. Um, and then because of you and your audience, um, I give a lot of copies of The Defining Decade Away by Dr. Meg Jay. And it's all about that decade after college where 75% of your um, income growth is going to happen, where you're like 90% likely to meet the person that you're going to marry. There's so many big things that happen. And a lot of people look at those years as throwaway years to go work in Starbucks and party. So I love it. Um, and she addresses, that's her whole specialty as a psychologist is that decade of life. And she's got great stories. And I found myself reliving my late 20s and early 30s and sometimes patting myself on the back and sometimes going, 
drat. I mean, what was I thinking? This, of course, this makes sense. I should have done that. Um, but she's got the wisdom of a lot of it of collective experience helping people and making the best decisions. So I, I love that book, and I give it away all the time. And I would also like to add the one thing. Uh, yeah, I can't recommend <laughs> my own book. That would just be horrible for him. <laughs> Any uh, movie or documentary you would recommend? Um, we'll go with documentary. Um, I think a lot of us have seen Euro Dreams of Sushi. Um, yes. I love that movie. It's it's too slow. It was too slow for my kids to watch, but it's a great one thing journey about how um, if you can get passionate and you know start asking that question, what what are the things I really truly feel passionate about? You'll do more of them, and you'll get better and better. And here's a guy who's the best guy in the world at this. And he's at Subway Station. His sushi. I know. I know it's so humble and so yeah. glorious too. Like I remember putting that like as a bucket list thing. If I'm ever going to Japan, like I think you have to book it out like three or four years yeah. to get seat in that restaurant. I checked two months. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, what advice would you give to your 25 year old self? Um, you know, there's a woman named Wendy Wilkinson. Um, she's from Fargo. She's living in New York. Go find her as fast as you can. Um. I really do believe that. I mean, that would be, I wish I could have figured out that part of my life because it was so messy and painful a lot faster. Um, but no, I mean, I think have more confidence in yourself, um, you know, move past your fear faster. Um, that's where everything happens, you know, and in one of those areas was where, you know, I ended up discovering my wife by getting things in the right order. I wish every all my listeners, including myself, get to experience the relationship you have with your wife. Um, everybody has the opportunity to make it. It's not something that will happen to you. So it's something you can create. That would be my advice. Because like, like I said before, it is a lot of work. Um, but I'm willing to appreciate it for what it is, um, works and all. And I think it's there for everybody if you choose. I'm just throwing this question. Any books you would recommend for relationships? Um, you know, the one that immediately came to mind was the, the five love languages. If you've never read that, um, I thought it was, it's fairly, um, it's great at getting you out of your own head and focusing on communicating to other people on the terms that they want you to communicate with. Have you ever read that book? No. It's, it's, it's pretty simplistic. You just, you do a questionnaire. Um, it feels really corny, but like, you know, is your love language time together? Is it words of affirmation? Is it gifts? And I think we all say, like, mine is time together. Like, I can spend hours with my wife on a date night, sitting in a movie, and not talk a word, and I feel so close to her. She, by the way, doesn't feel close to me. She <laughs> wants to be talking, right? And so I have to remember, like, that's something that if I'm going to give her what I, you know, and I expect back, like, I can't just say we're going to the movie every time we go on a date night. That's not fair to her. That's not her love language. And so we meet understanding that helps you be a better partner basically so it just gives you a framework and it's a it's a little corny but it's instructive i think it's like probably 80 percent true for most of the people and i've talked to a lot of people who have gone through there and said you know what i did learn a little something about myself and i learned about my boyfriend too wow um any quote or mantra you live by um this is from my boss um it's a it's probably the next big book we'll write it's um no one succeeds alone um, I really believe that. I, don't, I think that if you look at all the great companies, there may be one person, Steve Jobs, that gets all the credit, right? But there was Wozniak, too. So the moment you come to understand that everything great um, 
is probably not going to be an individual achievement. It matters a lot who you surround yourself with. Um, then you get really purposeful about finding those relationships and and investing in them. You you just treat them differently. So, yeah, no one succeeds alone. Um, I think it's the old Jim Rohn quote: "You're the average of the five people you spend the most time with." Absolutely. I would love to find a way to scientifically prove that, but I believe it to be true. Wow. Last question: What is your definition of courage? That's、oh, funny. I think I slipped out earlier.、Um, in our investing book. I remember one of the people saying because、um, we were talking about how terrified I was on the first investment I did with my wife, and he goes, "Dude, man, you know,、um, money lies on the other side of fear." And I remember, you know, sharing that with Gary, and we started playing with it, and it was like, you know, opportunity lies on the other side of fear, and so I think of courage as an opportunity bridge. That was what I actually, when you said that, I was like, "Oh, it's an opportunity bridge," but I had to unwind that for you because. Most of what we're afraid of—I mean, there's snakes and things that are rational, right—but there's things that we're afraid of that aren't physically dangerous to us. Not now. There's going to be snake lovers sending you hate mail, <laughs> right? So yes, that's that's as an you know you know what I'm saying. Yeah. But I mean, I think that、uh, the big stuff happens when we're really not feeling comfortable,、um, and often it takes a little courage. You know, I think it took a little courage for me to say, Gary, I hear you're writing a book. Um, it definitely took courage to ask my future wife out. There are all these little moments where you have to step, just a little baby step, sometimes past your fear, and that's almost always a sign that there's opportunity there. Because the fear says, "I'm afraid of missing out or losing or failing." Right? There's the good fear, like about a plane crashing and things that could be dangerous, whatever that may be to you. But then there's the the opportunity fear, and I think it's so courage is that bridge that gets you there,、um, and. You just—I mean, I'm trying to cultivate it in my kids.、Um, I try to remind myself that that's there,、um, and that's—that's. That's, I guess that's how I would very wordily describe courage. Thank you so much. This was such a great talk. All right. Well, thank you so much, and safe travels to you. And I'm glad we met. Thank、okay. you so much for talking about our book. I know Gary would be very pleased. Hey, you guys. Thank you so so much for tuning into today's episode. I really really appreciate your time. And if this episode has Added value in your life in any way, shape, or form. Then please, please, please subscribe on iTunes. Leave a comment and go to limitlessgrid.com for show notes. And I will talk to you guys next week.